From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, August 3rd. I'm Aaron Schachter. Olympic controversies today and in 1908. They booed their fury, and after much argument with the American officials, the British signaled a foul. And an American veteran of the Spanish Civil War remembers the men he fought alongside. You had these strange experiences with guys, you know, the toughest guys you'll ever meet, and they turned out to be quite chicken. I've seen a guy's hair turn white, and the strangest thing in the world. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. We are one week into the 2012 Summer Olympics in London, and what a week it's been. China and the United States continue to battle it out in the race for the most medals. On the American side, we've seen U.S. swimmer Michael Phelps become the most decorated Olympian of all time. And we watched Gabby Douglas wow the world by winning gold in the women's all-around gymnastics competition. This weekend, attention turns to London's Olympic Stadium, which has been pretty quiet since the opening ceremony. Our man in London is Alex Galifant, and he joins me now. Alex, we've got the uh, track and field events kicking into high gear this weekend. I imagine everyone is eagerly anticipating seeing the fastest man and the fastest woman in the world get crowned. The race for the the crown of fastest man on earth is is particularly enticing. That's on Sunday evening. It's all about two Jamaicans. Uh, Usain Bolt, he won the gold in Beijing un- unbelievably fast four years ago. But there's a young pretender, another Jamaican, Johan Blake. Will he take the crown? What else is getting you excited this weekend? In Britain, the big event this weekend is the women's heptathlon. One of the favourites is the British athlete Jessica Ennis, and she's now a huge star in the UK. And the roar she got this morning as the heptathlon got underway was just incredible. Now, Alex, it's of course no big deal that one of Great Britain's most popular athletes is a woman, but that's not the case in in many parts of the world. In fact, these games have seen the debut of women from countries that haven't sent female athletes before. That's right. And today we saw the first woman ever to compete for Saudi Arabia at the Olympic Games. She's a 16-year-old judo player named Wujan Shahani. And she's been on quite a journey to get here. Before the Games, Saudi authorities tried to block any women from taking part in the Olympics for the Saudi team. Then the International Olympic Committee pressured the Saudis into changing their minds. But then it looked like Shahani might not compete at all because judo's governing body said she couldn't wear a head covering for safety reasons. And she had to wear a head covering for religious reasons, but she did compete. Right. In the end, she wore a safety cap, which is a, a compromise But then she was quickly beaten by an opponent from Puerto Rico. But she was there. And Alex, one of the other events happening today has been the women's weightlifting. There's an Egyptian participating in that competition. And 
In Egypt, there's a bit of a different feeling toward women in sports. Alex, stick around for just a few minutes. The world's Matthew Bell has a story about that. Egypt has sent more than 100 athletes to the London Games, and 36 of them are women. That's more than ever before. Egyptians already got a taste of Olympic glory this week. One of the men captured a silver medal in fencing. But the most anticipated event for Egyptian fans might be weightlifting. And the team of eight lifters competing in these Olympic Games includes three women. I watched 25-year-old Esmat Ahmed Mansour finishing up one of her last workouts in Cairo before heading to London. And that's 130 kilograms, or about 286 pounds she's lifting over her head. I turned to one of Mansour's coaches, Mahmoud Kamal Mahajoub, a former Olympic weightlifter himself, and asked if he can lift that much. Not now, he says. <laughs> Mahajoub says the first time he saw a woman lifting weights was in 1988 at a competition in Eastern Europe. He says he was skeptical about women competing in anything except what he calls smooth sports like gymnastics and swimming. I didn't believe at first. Of course. Because at this time, I believe the women's sports should be gymnastics, swimming, this kind of sport. But weightlifting, this was very strange. Weightlifting is very popular in Egypt. Mahajoub says you can go to just about any small village and find lots of young people pumping iron and building their bodies. Egyptian Olympians have been lifting weights since ancient times, of course. But they've had more modern success, too. Mahajoub says they've won six gold medals overall, though the last one was back in 1948 in London. And now we're going back to London, I hope. Get any any kind of medicine. <laughs> and the team is ready, says Esmat Ahmed Mansour. She started getting serious about weightlifting at the age of nine. Nowadays, she spends the whole year traveling, training, and competing. Women's weightlifting, she says, is getting a lot more attention now. Like most of the women on the Egyptian team, Mansour does not wear a headscarf, and she works out right alongside her male teammates at Cairo's main athletic center. Of course, people in Egypt have gotten used to the idea that a woman's place is in the home, Mansour says. But women like me want to show that we can compete. My family is very supportive of my career, Mansour says, but some Egyptians give me a hard time. They make ignorant comments. I don't really care. Since I've proven myself in weightlifting, she says, more and more Egyptian girls have been taking up the sport. Mansour says she's won so many medals at world championships and regional competitions that she has stopped counting. It's the Olympic medal she wants now, but she's going to have to be patient. Mansour placed ninth this week in London for her weight class. One of her female teammates came in fifth today. Egypt's best chance for another medal in 2012 might be another teammate, Nahla Ramadan Mohammed. She will be competing in the final women's weightlifting event on Sunday. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Cairo. And you can find pictures of the Egyptian women's weightlifting team online at theworld.org. The world's Alex Galifant is still with us. And Alex, uh, it's good to see that gender barriers are beginning to break down in Olympic sports. But there will always be controversies. 
They are as certain as gold medals. Actually, there's a fun story about a brouhaha I wanted to share with you. It's about the 400 meters final that took place at the 1908 games, which were also held in London. Four runners, one British and three American. The British hosts set all the rules and they provided all the race officials, and they set the track up without lanes or strings separating the runners. Now, during the race, one of the Americans, the favourite. As he ran, he moved in front of the British runner, like into his lane. Although there weren't any lanes, and as the Olympic historian Janie Hampton told me, the partisan British crowd did not like that. They booed their fury, and after much argument with the American officials, the British signalled a foul. The American favourite was disqualified, and so the plan was to rerun the race without him a few days later with the remaining three. But the American team thought this was all a nefarious British conspiracy, and they just refused to run again. So Halswell, representing Great Britain, entered the 400 metre final on his own. He ran as fast as he could against himself, and he won the gold medal. You nasty Brits! It's 1908, Aaron. Let it go. <laughs> Finally, Alex, I believe you have some more Olympic-themed poetry, which we've talked about earlier in the week, to share with us. Yeah, and you know, with all the Olympian performances coming up over the weekend, you know, incredible feats of athleticism, I, I thought it'd be fun to pay homage to the amateur athletes out there. And this is part of a, a poem called "Great North." It refers to a wet and windy cross-country race in the north of England. It's by the poet Colette Bryce, and it's read by Claire Redcliffe. Usain Bolt, we are not by a long shot wired to our iPods. We are your average middle-aged bipeds, half-trained, stiff-hinged, pegging up the course, as lightly overtaken by a pantomime horse, on to the finish and vitality, fleeing those intimations of mortality. We've got more Olympic poetry online at theworld.org. Alice Galifant, as always, thank you so much. Thanks, Aaron. Now here's an impressive feat. An eight-month journey of over 350 million miles. That's how far NASA's latest interplanetary rover has traveled to reach Mars. The rover is called Curiosity. It's the size of a compact car and carries its own chemistry lab that can shoot laser beams and analyze rocks. Curiosity is due to land on the red planet Sunday night. It's all part of a multi-billion-dollar space mission that involves teams from the U.S., Russia, France, and Spain. One of the most daring aspects of the mission is the landing. Here's actor William Shatner describing it in a NASA video. When she arrives at Mars, Curiosity has seven minutes to go from 13,000 miles an hour to a soft landing. These so-called seven minutes of terror encompass a sequence of steps that we cannot control or even witness real time because signals take 14 minutes to reach Earth from Mars. Curiosity's heat shield, burning at nearly 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit, will protect the rover as she slows down rapidly. On the way down, the spacecraft fires thrusters to stay on target for Gale Crater. Now, after those steps, there's still a parachute that needs to open, a heat shield that flies off, and on and on until a pyrotechnic device severs the rover from its jetpack on the ground. Whew, it sounds like science fiction, but Miguel San Martín assures us it's all true. He's the guidance, navigation, and control chief engineer at the Mars Science Laboratory project in Pasadena. 
Miguel, come on, between you and me, this is nuts, isn't it? It's a little bit, but <laughs> a colleague of mine says, product of rational thought, <laughs> that uh, you're constrained by the laws of physics. I mean, you're, you're coming at that velocity, you need to stop the machine, and that's what you need to do. Now, as we heard in the video, Curiosity will land in something called the Gale Crater. Um, Correct. Why that particular place? Well, it's the result of a, a very interesting process that I, you know, we witnessed as engineers where the scientists have to pick the right place to go. We as engineers, we give them certain conditions. So given that, the scientists met, there are scientists from all over the world, and they chose Gale Crater, which is really exciting because you have this mount in the center. It's a, a four-kilometer or five-kilometer mountain that is made out of strata for many, many years. It has a whole history of Mars in different layers of material. So the scientists describe that as the rover starts to analyze the layers at the bottom and it goes uphill, essentially it's like reading a book. Now, uh, for many scientists who work with NASA, it is a dream come true to either go into space themselves or, or, you know, work on rockets that get up into space. You have quite an amazing story yourself. You grew up in Argentina and at one point dreamed about working for NASA. How did that happen? Well, you know, I was interested in engineering since I can remember. I grew up in the 60s. The space program was its, its peak, which I followed, you know. So I, I actually followed the landing of Viking. I just happened to be in, in my family's farm in the Patagonia when that took place. So the only thing I had is an AM radio that I used to listen to the BBC reporting on the mission. And then I remember that the transmission ended, and then the next morning, I found that that of the great success. So, you know, for me, that was, I want to be part of that. And I was lucky enough that I was able to do it. Miguel, the rover lands on Mars Sunday night. We're told about 10.30 p.m. on the West Coast. Will you, will you get any sleep Sunday night, do you think? Uh, probably not. And in this business, being 99.9% right, or in other words, 0.1% wrong, it might not be enough. On paper, everything looks awesome. The statistics of success and, and our simulations, they give us plenty of margin in the system, but it's just that little thing that can give us a bad day. Miguel San Martin is the Guidance, Navigation, and Control Chief Engineer at the Mars Science Laboratory Project in Pasadena, California. Sunday night, if all goes well, he will land Curiosity on Mars. Miguel, thank you so much. Thank you. How will Curiosity make its landing on Mars? Check out NASA's simulation video. We have it at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. The voting has been completed. The machine is locked. Today, the U.N. General Assembly overwhelmingly adopted a resolution written by the Saudis. It condemns the violence by the Syrian government and the Security Council's failure to stop it. The result of the vote is as follows. In favor, 133. Against, 12. Abstention, 31. The U.N. correspondent for The Washington Post, Colm Lynch, was watching the vote. Colm, what is the U.N. actually able to do about the violence in Syria? Um, absolutely nothing. I mean, I, I think that, you know, the General Assembly action today, um, somebody described the diplomacy to me at the U.N. They're saying the whole process is kind of going into this diplomatic twilight zone where 
it's like there's someone dead in the family, you know, sort of in another room and nobody wants to acknowledge that they've passed away. I mean, it's strange. I mean, the whole process of the negotiation sort of collapsed last month when Russia and China vetoed a resolution which was kind of laying out uh, Kofi Annan, the envoy Kofi Annan's sort of final blueprint for resolving the crisis diplomatically. There were elements of pressure on the parties to go along with a plan for a political transition. And the Russians and the Chinese blocked this and left Kofi Annan with very little diplomatic leverage to apply to the parties. And uh, we saw that he has resigned this week. And so the UN track, the UN diplomatic track is essentially dead. It's possible it could come back to life down the road. But I mean, the real sort of gravity is kind of shifting to the region and the next kind of phase of this is is going to be largely military. I mean, in a way, it feels like this is a bit of a sideshow. Well, given the fact that uh, Kofi Annan resigned for these very reasons, these these big divisions within the UN, especially the Security Council, and the fact that this resolution was non-binding, why do you think they even brought it up? It does well, look pretty silly, as you say. Yeah, but I mean, the you know, I think that you know, there's another example of this is the, the French foreign minister, you know, after the vetoed resolution was saying, let's hold a meeting of Security Council ministers and the Security Council and plot new steps. And he had to cancel it because no one was going to show up for it. I mean, you know, there's no prospect for breaking the impasse between the West and the Arabs on one hand and the Chinese and the Russians on the other. So it's kind of stuck. But everyone, like the French foreign minister, wants to show that they're doing something. Yeah, well, it's a wonderfully noble thing what they purport to be trying to do. But it seems that every failed resolution, every failed plan just makes the UN look worse and worse. Um, yeah, it doesn't make it look like it's a serious organization when, you know, it's an organization set up to sort of, you know, to do diplomacy. And it's kind of handled in such a ham-handed way. Is it safe to assume that um, Moscow and Beijing were uh, two of the votes against? Yeah, it's safe to assume that. I mean, you know, before the vote, you had a lot of the the usual suspects, North Korea, Venezuela, Cuba, Iran, coming out and, and denouncing the West and saying that this resolution is, is kind of covered for a military intervention. South Africa came out with a kind of somewhat convoluted mm-hmm. reasoning, you know, sort of saying that uh, they thought that uh, that this was not a balanced approach, um, but that, you know, in the cause of, you know, international unity will support the resolution anyways. But, um, but you know, clearly they wanted to register their sort of disquiet over, over the process. Colin Lynch is the U.N. correspondent for The Washington Post. He spoke with us today about a U.N. resolution condemning the violence by the Syrian government and the Security Council's failure to stop it. Colm, thank you. All right. Thanks a lot for having me. No problem. As expected, Russia said no on the Syria referendum. But Russia's President Vladimir Putin may be signaling a change on a different issue. Yesterday, Putin said three members of the punk band Pussy Riot shouldn't be judged too severely. That may be news to the three women now on trial for their anti-Putin performance in Moscow's most revered church back in February. The three are charged with hooliganism and could go to prison for seven years if convicted. Miriam Elder of The Guardian newspaper is covering the trial. She's in Moscow. Miriam, what are people making of Putin's comments? 
Well, I spoke to the defense lawyers this morning uh, shortly after Putin's comments came out. And the way that they're taking it is that this is Putin's uh, signal to the judge. It's something he he often does, makes comments through the media that tells, um, sort of spells out how justice should play out. So it's his way of telling the judge, don't hand down the full seven years, give, give the women um, a smaller sentence. And does it usually work that way with uh, Putin giving signals? And, and are those signals taken? Yeah, there's a long history of it, including with... Uh, the case against Pussy Riot, the uh, charges against them were levied after he made some comments, um, you know, saying uh, how much he disagreed with what they had done. Russia has a very politicized court system, and you can see it just in, in the conviction rate, and it's about, it's over 99%. And what's your take on how the case is going so far? I've been to a few court cases uh, in Russia in, in my time here, and this is probably the most absurd that I've ever sat in upon. The words that the lawyers are using are, are the words for show trial, and I've, I've never felt like I really sat through a show trial before, but that's what it feels like this time. You've been tweeting throughout the trial, um, sometimes quite caustically, and you've been quite cutting about the judge. Why is that? It's so one-sided what's happening in that courtroom. The judge is completely dismissive of the defense. Sometimes it's as if they don't even exist. They'll raise objections and she'll just sort of turn the other way and pretend she hasn't heard them. Um, Otherwise, it's just it really reaches such levels of absurdity that I've even toned down what I've put on Twitter sometimes. It's impossible to describe fully what's happening (laughs) there. There was a funny one I just read that uh, where you talked about the judge um, cutting down the defense and you wrote, the dog barks. Yeah, there's been a dog in the courtroom since day one. Um, Most days it's this gigantic Rottweiler. It's quite interesting that the dog follows the women whenever they leave the room for a break. It seems to me that it could be put there, you know, as a means of uh, intimidation, but the guards have their own explanations. And is it an accident that the judge is a woman? I think it is quite interesting, and I hadn't thought about it before, you know, whether they assigned a female judge to this case um, on purpose, since Pussy Riot is a a feminist punk band, um, but I'm not quite sure. So how much longer do these three women have to wait before the trial ends, and, and what still has to happen? The trial is moving incredibly fast. Three out of the five days, it's gone on till 10 p.m. So they're moving through as quickly as possible, and it looks like a verdict could come next week, possibly early next week. What has to happen next is um, they're finishing up with the defense witnesses right now, I believe, and then the women will give their closing statements, the prosecution will give their closing statement, and then the judge will recess to deliberate. Now, this trial may be going quickly, but they're spending a lot of time on what you seem to suggest is already a done deal. And that's what makes this case um, interesting. It's interesting in many ways, but in, in one particular way is they're not really going by procedure. You know, usually they try to follow some kind of procedure of justice, but this time it's just kind of ignoring appeals by the defense entirely. Um, so usually they try to go through the motions. This time they're doing sort of a superficial version of that and just running through it. The Guardian's Miriam Elder and Moscow check out her tweets and what others have been saying about the case in the Twitter sphere at theworld.org. Miriam, thank you so much for the update. Thank you. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter, still to come on the world. While America's grain belt suffers the effects of drought, soy farmers in Argentina plan for a bumper crop. Also, we meet one of the last surviving American veterans of the Spanish Civil War and some surprising suggestions on where to get a great Frank. Turns out Chile is a hot dog hotspot. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. 
United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Parts of the American Midwest finally got some much-needed rain this week, and more may be on the way. But it may not provide much solace for farmers in the grain belt who are suffering through the worst drought in decades. Much of this year's corn and soy crop is expected to be lost here in the U.S., and that's causing a spike in world grain prices. But that's not bad news for everyone. While U.S. farmers struggle, South American farmers may prosper. They're looking forward to bumper crops and record profits this year. Ian Mount reports from Argentina. At this year's La Rural Agriculture Convention in Buenos Aires, the top bull sold for some $82,000. That's 56% more than last year. It's good times ahead for Argentine farmers. Last year, they endured a scorching drought. Now they're poised to plant record soy and corn crops, just in time to capitalize on booming global grain prices. Argentina will be one of the biggest winners in the grain market this year, says Agustina Nieves, a market analyst at the Puente financial firm in Buenos Aires. The reason for this bonanza is simple the worst drought to hit America's Midwest in half a century. American corn and soybean harvests are projected to be way down, and grain prices are shooting up. That turns out to be good news for farmers in South America, where the seasons are flipped and seeds are about to go into the ground. Here's Malcolm Rodman, speaking by phone from his 2,000-acre farm in southern Buenos Aires province. All these rises in prices help us. They help us a lot. Not that I wish anybody... Uh, bad weather or bad luck because we're all farmers, the Americans and us also. You might expect Argentine farmers to be happy at the prospect of a bumper harvest and profits, but they're surprisingly downbeat. It has a lot to do with a bitter fight with the government over grain export taxes. They're angry about the 35% tax they pay on soy exports, not to mention the export limits on wheat and corn that the government imposed to keep domestic food prices low. In Argentina, Argentina, we have communism without the KGB, says Juan José Neyman. He manages farmland in the La Pampa province. Neyman says after transportation and taxes, he only gets about 28% of what he sells. So... Many in the Argentine grain business complain that they're not getting the benefit of record prices. Here's Javier Buján, a broker on the Buenos Aires Grain Exchange. The government is the major beneficiary because it doesn't put in a peso, and in the case of soy, it collects 35%. Worse, some farmers have stopped planting certain crops because they don't know if the government will let them export. Again, Malcolm Rodman. For example, in my area, I'm in an area absolutely 100% wheat, and uh, this year on my farm we've sown no wheat at all. Brazil may pass the U.S. as the world's largest soy producer this year, and Argentine farmers complain that their South American colleagues will make more from the drought-inspired commodity boom because they don't face the same government intervention. That may be true. But even with taxes and inflation, Argentina's farmers will do quite well, says Ricardo Marra, president of the Buenos Aires Grain Exchange. 
The government wins because it collects 35 percent. The producer wins because he receives more. The exporters win. The brokers win because they get higher commissions. With high prices, in an agricultural country like ours, everyone wins. Back at the La Rural Agricultural Expo, one thing Argentine farmers do not dispute is their sympathy for their American counterparts. After all, they suffered through their own drought six months ago. Tiziana Prada runs that Cabaña El Chañar ranch in the province of Corrientes. I understand perfectly what they're going through. I know that uh, farming or cattle, it's not a work. It's a way of life. And uh, we put passion and we put love into the land. And we know that when drought comes, everything goes downfall. And it takes so many years, so many years to get back to the beginning. For the world... This is Ian Mount in Buenos Aires. From Argentina now to Wisconsin, that's where a small oil spill could mean big problems for a Canadian company that wants to build a controversial pipeline from Alberta to the Pacific Ocean. The world's environment editor, Peter Thompson, joins me now. Peter, I understand that the spill in Wisconsin was about 50,000 gallons. Now, that's an amount that doesn't usually rise to the level of international attention. Why are people so concerned with this particular spill? Well, Aaron, the spill happened last Friday in a town called Grand Marsh, Wisconsin. It's pretty much in the middle of nowhere unless you happen to live there. It was only about 50,000 gallons, as you said. And the company that runs the pipeline says it's bringing all necessary resources to bear in cleaning it up. So on its face, it's not really such a big deal as these things go. But what's gotten people's attention is that the company that runs the pipeline is a firm called Enbridge. And this is the same company that wants to build this major pipeline from the oil sands, or the tar sands as some people call them, from Alberta, across the northern Rocky Mountains to the Pacific coast in British Columbia. Of course, the tar sands themselves are extremely controversial, but this pipeline is also pretty controversial itself because it would go through some extremely sensitive wilderness territory and native lands, so there's been a growing fight over it in Canada. So can I assume that opponents of that pipeline are using the spill in Wisconsin in their argument against Gateway? Well, they're starting to. Um, and the bigger problem for Enbridge is that this is not an isolated incident. The company's had other pipeline problems in Canada, and another one of its pipelines here in the U.S. burst two years ago in Michigan. That accident dumped close to a million gallons of a type of oil called bitumen into the Kalamazoo River, and it's still being cleaned up today. And just last month, a regulatory agency here in the U.S. condemned the company and compared its response to the spill to the Keystone Cops. Now, in the wake of that report and this latest spill, the U.S. Department of Transportation has ordered Enbridge to certify the safety of its entire 1,900 miles of pipeline. So that likely means that this pipeline will be closed for a lot longer than it would have otherwise been. It also increases the scrutiny for Enbridge in Canada at a time when its proposal for that pipeline is in the middle of that growing battle. Right. So what is the latest on that? That's something we've covered here on The World. Well, there are two big issues. One, of course, is what the pipeline would carry, and that's this thick, heavy crude oil out of Alberta. It's been the object of these protests from environmentalists in the U.S. and Canada and elsewhere. They say it's among the dirtiest oil in the world, and burning it would have a huge impact on global warming. You'll remember that the opposition was part of what led President Obama to suspend construction earlier this year on the Keystone Pipeline, which would carry tar sands oil across the Canadian border 
after that decision, Canada said it would redouble its efforts to build this pipeline from the tar sands to the Pacific. But native groups in British Columbia are essentially saying that'll happen over their dead bodies. And the premier of British Columbia is also taking a tough stance. So the, this pipeline to British Columbia, dead in the water? I wouldn't say that at all. It's certainly facing some, some stiff headwinds. But mind you that the Canadian government has made its intention to get this pipeline built extremely clear. It's this part this of, is a lot of money we're talking about. Huge amount of money. Okay. And it's part of a, a, essentially a huge national energy and economic plan in Canada. So there's a huge amount of momentum behind it. But like I said, there are already also formidable forces lining up against it. And remember, these all emanate from the Alberta tar sands. And that's what kind of brings the story back to the U.S. And how is that? Well, remember uh, what I said earlier about uh, the U.S. government report on the Michigan spill Keystone calling the company cops. Keystone Cops. Right. It's, it's kind of hard to miss the resonance in that with the fight over the Keystone Pipeline. This would also carry bitumen from the tar sands in Alberta. So you can be pretty sure that when the Keystone battle is reopened following the election next fall, environmentalists are really going to push this issue of potential spills from these Canadian pipelines. The World's Environment Editor, Peter Thompson. Thanks very much. Thank you, Aaron. We're looking for Concordia for today's GeoQuiz. In Roman mythology, Concordia was the goddess of harmony. Harmony as between your mind and your heart. It's a virtuous state and one that's been adopted as a name for places all around the world. There's a town in South Africa, a bridge and university in Montreal, a Polish soccer team, even an asteroid. All are named Concordia. But the Concordia we're looking for is nowhere near any of these. Not quite as remote as an asteroid, but it might sometimes feel like it. Teams of French and Italian researchers are usually there in the chilly desert air, and we do mean chilly. With the wind chill, it can get down to 100 below. So take a few minutes. We'll be back with the answer and hear from a resident of this southernmost Concordia in just a bit. We hear lots of stories about U.S. veterans returning from Iraq and Afghanistan. James Benet's story is a little different. It involves the group of nearly 3,000 American men and women who volunteered for Spain's civil war in the 1930s. They fought against General Francisco Franco and his fascist forces and became known as the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. About 900 of them died in the fighting. Today, only four of them are still alive to tell their story. James Benet is one of them. He's now a sturdy 98 years old. Reporter Monica Campbell recently visited him at his home in Northern California. That's aerial bombing during Spain's Civil War. To most, it's history, the prelude to World War II. But to James Benet, these sounds bring back still vivid memories of war. What is it like to be bombed? scary. You know, you lie flat, hope that the fragments will go over you. I mean, in my case, at least they did. <laughs> it was spring 1937, and Benet joined nearly 3,000 other Americans to help fight General Franco's takeover of Spain. They formed part of an international volunteer front. They became the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. I think you can find a lot of corners of history if you want to start poking around. From his home in Forestville, in rural northern California, Benet recalls leaving for Spain in his early 20s. At the time, he was a journalist living in New York, a socialist raised in a military family. So when he heard about Americans united by their anti-fascist views heading to Spain, Benet boarded a ship to Europe. If 
the moment comes when it's the obvious right thing and somebody's got to do it, maybe it's going to be you. Once he landed, he headed to northern Spain to meet up with Spanish fighters and get equipped. Oh, we were given these awful uniforms. They were woolen, so really too hot. They were, I guess, leftover winter army uniforms or something. He served as an ambulance driver on the front with other volunteers, shopkeepers from Brooklyn, musicians, mill workers from the Midwest, people driven by belief but without any boot camp. They became combatants overnight. And, of course, some of them adopted the uh, soldier's life as if they were born to it. Fortunately, I was in pretty good physical shape, and some of the others just had a terrible time. You had these strange experiences with guys, you know, the toughest guys you'll ever meet, and they turned out to be quite chicken. I've seen a guy's hair turn white, (laughs) and the strangest thing in the world. He was afraid, of course, and everybody is afraid one time or another. Binet also remembers seeing Ernest Hemingway. The thing we liked about Hemingway was that he liked soldiers. He'd been under fire. He knew that you didn't want to talk about it. After 18 months, Binet and many of the volunteers left Spain. They knew that Franco's soldiers, with support from Hitler and Mussolini, would win. Binet says it was tough to go. You became so close to the Spanish people that you thought, I had to stick around. <laughs> of course, some of them went to the mountains and said, uh, okay, I'll live and die here, you know. Back in New York, Binet continued writing about the war for leftist magazines and TASS, the Soviet press agency. The Abraham Lincoln Brigade vets also organized public talks. We tried to explain, sure, you're not interested in politics, but politics is going to be interested in you. Even young men who were going to be drafted, a lot of these guys just didn't have the faintest idea what was going on. They didn't see it. And some of the vets, including Binet, were viewed with suspicion, especially after Soviet leader Joseph Stalin formed a pact with Adolf Hitler in 1939. There were the people who disliked the Russians anyway, so they said, aha, this just shows you what rats they are. Binet rejected the Soviet-Nazi pact, too, but he was also dismayed that the U.S. had left Spain to fend for itself while the Soviets backed Spain's anti-fascists. And he continued to write for a Soviet news agency. Well after Spain, Binet and his fellow vets were labeled as communist dupes. During the Cold War, they were called to testify before Washington groups like the House Committee on Un-American Activities. But Binet says he's never regretted what he did back in the 1930s. Well, I always felt that I was on the right side of history in Spain, yes, sure. For The World, I'm Monica Campbell in Forestville, California. Before we head to the break, you may remember yesterday's interview about the world's best hamburgers. Super bacon cheeseburger. <laughs> yeah, that one jumped out at me, too. <laughs> that was Megan Steintreger, an editor at Gourmet.com. We suggested that Megan might want to look into another American culinary delicacy. Hot dog, hot dog, hot dog, hot dog, dang. Hot dog. Yes, hot dogs. We asked for your suggestions on where to find the best dogs in the world, and we got some juicy responses. Christopher William Land suggests we hit the Silver Bullet in Sudbury, Ontario. Another listener said Salzburg, Austria, has the best dogs at a tiny place called Balkan Grill Walter with out-of-this-world curry spices. 
And there's more in Santiago, Chile. You've got the venerable Domino. Anthony Bourdain's mentioned that one in the past. But there's also a new Santiago dog spot, Hogs. Keep your suggestions coming at theworld.org or tweet us at PRI The World. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. To answer our geo-quiz now, we're going to speak with a British medical doctor. Alexander Kumar is currently doing what he calls overwintering in an extreme and remote environment. Hello there. Hi. Can you hear me okay? Dr. Kumar, first tell me where you are. I'm living in the uh, central higher region of Antarctica. It's uh, the French-Italian research station. It's a sort of manned uh, research remote outpost located high up at about 3,800 meters equivalent altitude in that region of Antarctica, one of the most extreme environments on Earth. It's called Concordia Station. What are the other researchers doing there? Well, I'm first the station's doctor, so uh, we're completely isolated here from February until November uh, when our first plane will arrive, and there's no way in or out. So obviously uh, the doctor becomes or can become an important role in in the base, along with the cook, our chef, uh, who's Italian. The second part of my role here is actually the research. I'm trying to understand some of the challenges in regard to isolation, separation from our normal lives, sensory deprivation, and living through these dark, cold months. Do you go outside? And if you do, is there anything you can see? Absolutely. We have uh, actually one of the clearest views of the night sky anywhere available on the Earth, not only because of our height, but also because of the lack of light pollution. So we can look with our naked eyes straight into the Milky Way galaxy, which is incredible. We also are accompanied at night by the aurora occasionally, the aurora australis, that is, over the southern hemisphere, which dazzles our eyes in multiple colors, but mainly green. But uh, just in the last week, we've had our first glimpses of light below the horizon. It's as if the sun is bursting to come up above the horizon, almost overflow onto it. And so uh, for the first time in, in a while, I've been outside walking by this light. So it's, it's an incredible feeling to look at a window and not see darkness outside, but instead see uh, a glimpse of light. It's great hope. You know that it's not the end of the world after all. <laughs> <laughs> Have you taken a picture perhaps you could send us? Absolutely. I've got into a uh, hobby of astrophotography, so trying to take high-quality images of the stars and of the Milky Way. So, uh, yeah, I can certainly share images with you. Great. We'll uh, post that online here at theworld.org. Well, now it's Friday night there in Antarctica. You, you guys got a lot going on? We actually work six-day week here, so we generally try on one on Saturday night. But sure, during the evening, too, we do different things, you know, various games, various movies and so forth, which keeps us entertained. Of course, I, I'm quite accustomed now to watching movies in French and Italian, so I've become a master of Goddard, Truffaut and Fellini. <laughs> we have a lot of, obviously, a lot of music and things in the evenings, and I myself have just been getting into uh, Joey Lee Lewis's music and having him, blasting him out of the uh, windows, you know, over the Antarctic plateau is something else. It's uh, great, the music. Hey! So, 
Yeah, it's good times down here. Have you had any emergencies yet you've had to deal with, or are you concerned about the months that you have yet to go? Well, unfortunately, I can't talk about all the medical problems that may or may not have uh, come up. But I can say, you know, we are kept busy down here. The history of Antarctica is such that you have to be prepared for anything and expect the unexpected in terms of medicine. You know, you just have to look back in terms of the last 40, 50 years here, going from the British, Swedish, Norwegian expedition, which had, I think, a a, uh, rock specialist, get a thing into his eye and his eyeball had to be removed surgically by a doctor who had never done that before following a, uh, a telex or similar communication in from Sweden based on the advice. So uh, the stories are all there and you have to live in anticipation of what could happen, hoping that, of course that it doesn't. I mean, I've been to a lot of places. I've traveled to, lived and worked, in fact, to 60 countries around the world, and, you know, including the Arctic regions, and I've never had such a challenge in all my life. You know, they say the Everest is more of a psychological challenge than a physical one, and I certainly agree, having uh, spent the winter here and hopefully uh, survive. <laughs> Dr. Alexander Kumar at Concordia Station in Antarctica, the answer to our geo quiz. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time. See you. Bye. Finally, how about starting the weekend with a little Afro-funk? Here's music critic Tom Schnabel of KCRW with two suggestions. I'm a big fan of African music, and what's interesting about African music is some of the, the reissues or even some of the new bands doing old-school-style African music uh, have been coming out, and the first is from BLO. Sit down, rest backwards, listen to the music. BLO is an acronym for uh, three guys, Berkeley Ike Jones, who plays guitar, Leolu Akins Akintobi, who plays drums, and Mike Kabenga Odumosu playing the bass. They're Nigerian musicians. They formed in 1972. They broke up in 1982. This is a reissue of an LP that I think came out in Nigeria. These guys, BLO, toured with Ginger Baker when he was in Nigeria in the mid-70s. They basically specialize in big Afro-soul groove. Lots and lots of funk. It sounds good. A song called Mind Walk from the 1970s Lagos, Nigeria band BLO. The new album is called Step 3. Another album that caught my attention is a group that actually recorded recently, but they've got a very, very 70s Afro-soul sound. It's a Ghanaian band called Konkoma, named after a tribe in northern Ghana, and the project of a sax player named Max Grunhard and a producer named Ben Lambden. What they did is to go out and find two great Ghanaian musicians who were big in the 1970s, Alfred Bannerman and Emmanuel Rensos. They captured that classic sound. One track that I really liked from Konkoma is called Handkerchief. Handkerchief. 
CDs of African music, Konkoma, a Ghanaian band who recorded this album just a few months ago, but it has that old school sound. And the other one, BLO, which is a reissue of a classic 1973 EMI recording from Lagos, Nigeria, called Step 3. Some Afropunk picks from frequent contributor Tom Schnabel. And we have more on BLO and a sleek music video of Kankuma at theworld.org. The world's theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH. I'm Aaron Schachter. Have a great weekend. Well,